Up next on episode 33 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss a bunch of cool technology stuff. Really, listen, you'll like it. From IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Tonight, on a very special Stack Overflow podcast. But that wasn't even funny, so I'm not going to do it again. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't know when I was supposed to say woot. Couldn't figure it out. Um, our, guest, our guest today is uh, Babak Garmanpour, who's the head dev of the Foglux team. And uh, Jeff, you there? I am here. Welcome to yeah, Stack okay. Overflow Podcast 33B. I've got uh, Babak here in my office. And uh, Wait, I just. Uh, 33C, right? This is take two. So. You're right. That's right, because we didn't record 33B. <laughs> This is an embarrassment. Yes, now we're actually recording. This is a professionally run podcast. Just so that I am knows. a professional podcaster. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm going to do so it. I'm going I'm to make a. I'm going to make a checklist. Remember to press the record button. Yeah, you need one of those checklists like they have in the hospitals. Don't you have the the, the the Pamela set to record your side automatically? I do, but sometimes I close Pamela because I find it very aggravating when it runs in the background. It does annoying oh, yeah. things that I don't want. Yeah, it's one of those like slimy apps that needs to run at all times. Jeff, now I'm actually in Joel's office, so I can I can watch what he does while you're talking and uh, report to you. Nice. Watch out for that Jimmy Buffett album he has. It's yeah, contagious, I so know. I don't want you to get infected by that. That it's could be dangerous. Hey, speaking of music, uh, I sent you guys yep. a cymbal kit for the rock band drum. Oh, set. hey, yeah, thanks for that. We got it. Are they using it? Yeah, thank you very much, Jeff. We, uh, it, the, the day it came in, um, there was a, a ma- massive rock band session in the evening, and there was a lot of uh, hitting the cymbals. So it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, the fun part with the cymbals is learning just how much of drums is the cymbals. Like, you have to hear it because there's no visual representation of what you're supposed to hit. Right. It's, right. Completely, it's just a color. It's the same color. You could hit either. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But if you actually listen to the music... I didn't appreciate in drumming how much you're playing the cymbals, right. <laughs> like all the time, uh, until I got sort of the cymbal add-ons. So it, it does teach you a little bit about music, which is I think the fun part of these games is you know you're experiencing the music and you're learning a little bit about how music is made. And you're not That's a musician. Right. Obviously. You can become a good a good guitar player. You got to practice with uh, Guitar Hero <laughs> a few years. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not before at all. you get the real thing. Not at all. There's no transference. There is some transference in drumming because the performance is roughly analogous to what you're doing, but certainly not on guitar. But mostly, it's just I, I enjoy like experiencing the music. You know, I, I love music, so just another way to enjoy the music and learn how it's made without, you know, spending three years in a crappy band touring the country and <laughs> failing to make. I, I think what's awesome about the rock band is it teaches you how difficult singing really is. I, I, incredible. <laughs> Singing is yeah. You can definitely tell people who are good good at singing. Wow, there's there's a huge difference. Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean you def- can kind of get like you can pick up a guitar and imagine um, getting okay at it, 
you know, even if you just want to get okay at it after, after you, know, you know, get four lessons, four one-hour lessons or something like that, and figure out how to play your favorite, I don't know, Bob Dylan song. But singing is just incredibly difficult. Um, and I don't, I don't know, I mean... Uh, I'm dust in the wind. See what I mean? <laughs> we, all we are is dust, dust and, in and the wind. And Joel's been practicing his whole life for that. Woo. Okay. Uh, Joel, you still haven't played rock band, though, have you? No. With your team? That's, I never know that's any what, of the songs. That's very unsportsmanlike. We've talked about this. The only song I know is, This is a triumph. I'm making a note here. You no, you want, you want to know why Joel doesn't play rock band with us? I want to get some inside knowledge into the, the inner workings of Farm I'm Creek. I'm turning off your mic. Wait, and, and possibly Joel. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, he, he's, the, he's the CEO and, and leader, uh, chairman of the organization here. So he, you know, if he's going to do something that, that might make him look, look bad, then I think he's calculating that he should just not even try, not even do it. So there's this mystery around the... Uh, wait, wait, wait. When has that ever stopped you before, Joel? This is like the first time. <laughs> <laughs> to change the subject. So, Jeff, I see... <laughs> <laughs> I see here on the Stack Overflow blogcast uh, the rent versus buy discussion here about the um, uh, the server that we have at Crystal Tech. Right, right. And to be clear, we've been very happy with Crystal Tech, and I'm not just saying that because they kind of give us a great rate. Um, uh, they really have. Like whenever we've had issues, they've been very responsive. I don't think we've had any downtime related to Crystal Tech ever. And also I do Coding Horror is hosted there as well. So I've yeah. been very happy with them. But one thing we're, we're noticing as we scale, um, and I, I mentioned, gosh, was it one or two podcasts ago, we did a lot of recent work around performance. Right. And performance is really excellent now. We're not really hitting the servers very hard. Mm-hmm. But on the database side, SQL Server has an insatiable appetite for memory. And as your database grows, it's just basic math, physics, whatever you call it. I mean, the more memory you have, the less you have the to faster. go to disk. Right? Yeah. The, the, the data can remain in memory. Right. Um, so I, w- I would really like to see us upgrade to 8 gigabytes or more of memory, particularly since memory is just ridiculously cheap now. It's like yeah. they give it away in boxes of cornflakes cheap. It's just it's crazy how inexpensive it is. Like I wouldn't even consider building a server with less than, say, 8 gigs of memory now because right. the prices are just so low. Um, Do you have the 64-bit uh, operating system on there? Yeah, I guess you Yeah, must. we're fully 64-bit stack, yeah. Yeah. top to bottom. The operating system, the database, everything, ASP.NET, everything 64-bit. Bob Becker, are we on a 64-bit uh, server for Fogwebs? If I was on demand, no. Not yet. What about the, oh, the wow. SQL database? Holy uh, yes, cow, SQL you guys works. really should be because I'm Definitely. telling you, it's like the SQL literally. Yep. It's like free performance, though, on yeah. every tier. It's crazy because the memory space just opens up like dramatically. Even for ASP.NET, you don't realize how often you run into that 2 or 4 gigabyte. Like You start to hit right. weird little limits. Because hmm. of the weirdness of the memory architecture, we could do that. That might make sense. Oh, I totally. Well, we are. Would. We are. This I think is something that is going to happen in the next version of Fogbooks. Oh, um, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's free performance, literally. So, so what I've yeah. always found on this, when you when you have a server, the buy versus the rent thing, is that you can usually buy a server for about eight months worth of renting fees, you know, and after that, it's just free money. So whatever headaches you get, it pays for itself, you know, certainly within a year, right? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not actually doing the calculations but well i think the wrench and the works here and i got a lot of i don't, I don't want to say negative feedback but feedback that we should move to like these these vague cloud services like azure and amazon ec, uh, EC elastic compute cloud oh that's um, just TechCrunch readers just they just read about that on TechCrunch, <laughs> and so that they, like a little bell went off when you said should i rent or buy and they're like oh i just read this article and so now they're recommending you know it's just the usual internet feedback well, there's a, there's a couple things that make that, I think, less desirable for us. One is I, I'm really, 
I mean, if we're going to go this route, I want really fine detail level of control over the hardware. And I'm just not convinced either one of these elastic compute solutions, the cloud solutions, would give us eight CPUs and 24 gigs of memory, you know, that I want, that I envision us having already in my mind's eye for the database. I'm just not convinced we could get that. And then I worry a little bit about performance. I think the main reason to use the cloud stuff is when you have highly variable traffic, Right. right? Like you have... You know, at midnight, everybody comes to your site to do something. Um, Buy something, maybe. And, and then you have to realize, too, you have to... And when, remember when we talked to the Reddit guys? One of the things they said that really stuck with me was that their hardest coding task for scaling was getting beyond two servers, right? Mm-hmm. Because database, web, that's so easy to do. And we've, we've already done that split. We split the data that's in the web onto different machines, ago, right? Right. Two months ago, you know. And, and the... That's hard, right? Because now we have to look at every place we're doing shared session state, which is not that many places, but it's a few places, so that you can actually scale across N web servers. Yeah. We have not done that work yet. We've always <laughs> done that in, uh, in Fogbugs. I don't think we've ever written code that... Well, actually, you may know about this, Bob. Is there anything in Fogbugs that gives us issues with multiple front web front ends? Uh, yeah, yeah, the heartbeat process uh, right now. But we, oh. we've, we've pretty much resolved that in um, licensed Fogbugs. The ones, the one that we, sh- the, the version we sell and you install on your own servers, and on demand, we um, believe it or not, haven't resolved that yet. But uh, but we have our own special heartbeat. So the heartbeat yeah. is the is this process that runs that does all the maintenance tasks that happen, uh, regardless of whether somebody's hitting a web page. Right. It's kind of this continuously running thing. Yeah. Yeah, we have something like that on Stack Overflow. We need to break it apart. I want like hourly, weekly, monthly. But that's a good point. Fo- There's the. Um, uh, uh, the, the, once you get beyond a single, especially if you're using relational data and you're in a SQL Server type or Oracle or whatever, once you get beyond the one machine, it becomes very, very difficult to to to, to scale if one machine just can't can't cut it for you. And so that's why I mean that's the biggest advantage to having your own server is at least you can make that machine as beefy as humanly possible without having to deal with a host that doesn't want to make a dedicated super beefy machine for you. Right. Well, and in their defense, and this is something that came up uh, when I solicited comments, was when you when you build, you're inheriting the service level agreement. In other words, if something goes wrong with the server, you have to have a backup on hand and ready to plug in. Mm-hmm. That's your problem now. That's true. Um, so there, I think part of their resistance would be they have a bunch of standard configurations they can just swap out if something goes wrong with the hardware. Yeah, that reminds the first thing, the first major server thing that we built in a colo facility. Well, the first thing we did is we just put a box out somewhere, and it was just running everything on one box. But our first upgrade, I think I had a stack of six identical boxes. Uh, the top one was a router. Um, the, the second one was a SQL database. There were two web servers, and that way we could bring down either web server. I mean, is that, that's four. What the heck was the fifth thing? Did you talk about mail server? Yeah, I guess that's right. There was NSP. That was like the application server, and so that ran DNS and mail and all the stuff that in those days was in uh, BSD. And then there was a sixth box that was just on and had nothing on it, no operating systems installed, nothing. And it just had the same identical hardware as the other five boxes so that we knew if anything happened, uh, we could just slam things into that fifth box. Um, and um, it had it was sort of there, – there was one difference. I think the SQL server was a little bit beefier than the other ones. And so our spare box also had that extra slightly beefy specification, and it also had the extra network card that the router box had had a couple extra network cards. So, so we had this sixth box that just had like one, you know, it could it could substitute, you know, in, instantly for any of the other boxes that were there. Um, realistically, we never needed that, 
and in fact, at some point, we just made it an extra SQL Server box, and I think that's where we where we stand. I don't know what this is admins are doing now, um, but um, uh, the the, the server grade hardware is so much more reliable than the, which is not to say it's 100% reliable, but it's so much more reliable than you may be used used to with like world's cheapest vanilla box. Yeah, we had, I mean, we had uh, redundant power supplies on all those servers. They were actually plugged into separate. That's true. They were plugged into separate uh, power distribution units. They each had, they each came, we got these Dell things. They came with two power supplies, uh, six drives, like RAID kind of situation. Right. Well, when it comes to servers, I have had quite a bit of experience uh, dealing with servers and building servers over the years and various jobs that I've had. And you always learn that the failure points are pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, statistically, you're just not going to get that many failures outside of hard drives fail a lot. It's not even the hard drive. It's the RAID controllers. <laughs> the, 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 RAID, it destroyed the hard, the oh, RAID yeah. controller has a failure and that, destroys the hard drive. thing drives. that we had for, for – there was a period of maybe like – three yeah. or four weeks, where uh, every other day we'd come in and some developer's hard drive was, would fail. Would fail. It was corrupt. But it, it both, like, this was the data on both drives that right. were bad. And there was some bug with the RAID controller we found out that was sort of corrupting. Some both. people told me that. It's actually kind of surprising is that the hardware RAID drives, just the hardware RAID, whatever the micro chip software mm-hmm. that's on them, is, it's written by hardware engineers and it's just not as reliable as the average operating system. Well, certainly when it comes to hardware versus software, time and time again I've learned that as great as hardware is, mm-hmm. software's flexibility and the just being able to patch it so rapidly usually wins. I mean, it's an evolutionary scale, right? The faster you can evolve, you're going to win. And Another example of this t- that I ran into today was building up my <laughs> home theater PC, which we kind of alluded to in a previous podcast, but we cut a lot of that out. <laughs> um, the, the actual hardware acceleration for the H264 uh, codec that's used mm-hmm. on some Blu-ray discs is actually faster through the software called Core AVC than in most hardware implementations on, like, say, the video card. Because it's just hard for the hardware guys to communicate with the software guys and get everything, like, working in Vista and XP. And right. By the time I enabled it, I was, I was shocked. I downloaded PowerDVD and I played my Blu-ray and I was like, why is it running so slowly? And I had ticked hardware acceleration. <laughs> <laughs> that is your mistake. The minute I unticked that, it was like, oh, it runs great. Of course, then it uses like Yeah, when you look at the software that's, that comes with like routers, that comes with you know cell phones, that comes with cheap telephones, whatever it may be, it's always, it, it's always you know, just not like the software that comes with hardware is never up to the standards of the software that is done by just pure software guys. And I have this theory that there's these electrical engineers that work in these hardware companies and somebody assigns them the job of writing the software and they're not really trained to do that. They're electrical engineers and, you know, they're not the greatest programmers in the world, but there's no, you know, they don't have programmers around or something. I don't know. There's kind of nothing a reliable, scarier. Uh, yeah. Nothing scarier than this, the DVD that comes with some bit of hardware that you bought. Yeah. It's like, oh, install me. I know. I, I, and the first Those thing it's like doing is voice- like getting up a minimum Visual Basic 6.0 environment up and running because they, oh. that was the only language they knew how to program in. And then they need to copy a file, and they couldn't figure out how to do that in VB, so they're launching a Java virtual machine, <laughs> which they yeah. make you download from some specific version of a you know, obsolete specific version of a Java virtual machine just to copy a file. It's and then plus, hilarious. it's usually out of date. The fact that it's mastered right. on a DVD and shipped with a product that sits on a shelf for just six months. Yeah. It's horribly out of date. So the whole model is just 
crazy. But I, I hear where you're coming from with, with the raid controllers. That's a really dangerous place to have things go wrong. Does uh, <laughs> so Leno- um, Lenovo? Uh, usually, every time we try to compare, I haven't looked at Lenovo, but every time I tried to compare in the past, uh, the Dells were always cheaper than than anybody. By I, I looked at I looked at Dell, yeah. and it wasn't that great. Like you looked at their you website, to- right? I did. And the other thing about Dell that's annoying, that yeah. I don't think Nova has this problem, there's the special sales guy rate. You, right. If you go to the website, you get, pardon my French, you get screwed. If you pay what's right. on the website, you're getting screwed. Yep. Period. Yep. That's what I hate about dealing with Dell now. I hate that. I know. That. They want you to call up and call to talk to the sales guy. But you know what? Their sales guy are really charming. They're sort of, they have these sexy Texas accents. But you know what? Uh-huh. I, it's just kind of like self-service checkout. <laughs> it's like, I'd rather just do it myself. I don't really want know, to talk to the sales dollars. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, if he's going to save me $500, then I have to. But it just drives yeah. me crazy. I, I don't really like that aspect of dealing with Dell. Yeah. Um, and the Lenovo, I believe, does not have that factored into it. The price that's actually shown is a realistic price. Well, which is why it looks I don't know if this is still true. I mean, they, they have Lenovo online. But if you want to get a cheaper price on a Lenovo thing, just go to PC Connection or CDW. And they're selling oh, yeah. the same things. And you call up a sales guy, and you're going to get a lower price than the one shown up on the, on the Lenovo website. Oh, sales guys. Yeah. I don't know can't get behind the sales guys i mean i no, me I, 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 i'm not sure anyone listening to this is a salesperson so it probably doesn't matter what i say but <laughs> well we've already lost yeah. their last listener anyway um <laughs> so hardware for stack overflow what else what else any other stack overflow direct news before we get to the questions or no i don't think so that's the big one it's just thinking about our scaling strategy starting on january with yeah. the servers and what you want to get okay let me uh the question is do, what do we want to do first we got to we got to figure out a good form, format for our show we got listener questions and we got stack. Let's do the Stack Overflow questions first. Okay. Where we each pick our favorite question from 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 Stack Overflow. Bob, I'll give you a few minutes to think about yours. Well, I did my homework. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, I just I, I earned a new badge, which is awesome. You just, earned a really? What badge yeah, did you nice, get? Nice answer. Yeah. Nice. You never had nice answer. But that, well, I did. I just got another one. Oh. So Jeff Adwood earned a new badge. That's really. That's right. That's. Uh, you just you probably just give them to yourself. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, how how, how do I know that you? <laughs> I know it's you know the strange thing is though is I do kind of covet the, particularly the gold badges are really hard to get. Like still, even though I made the system and I could totally give myself all the arbitrary badges I want, <laughs> I still like I'm amazed. Like, ooh, that guy has three gold badges, you know? And I know this guy. <laughs> I'm impressed, and I shouldn't be because it's completely artificial. Yeah, you could what well, you could make up a like like a like a Jeff Atwood badge. Just give it to yourself. Being Jeff Atwood. Hey, we don't have we have the beta we have the beta badge, which is cool. It's three thousand five hundred and thirty seven people and that will never go up. But where's the founder badge? We got rid of that because people objected to it. What? How, why would people object to that? They didn't like a badge that they could that they, they couldn't earn. Couldn't earn. But like, people can't even earn in the some beta. fantasy alternate reality where they could earn it. They could go backwards in time. I think it's spin right. the, the earth backwards like Superman does and get and, earn, and get a beta badge. But there's no way to ever get a founder badge. How about right. you can found any company? You just have to found a software company. doesn't have to be Stack Overflow. How, how would we vet that? That doesn't really make sense. Yeah, you let the community vet it. What's, yeah. your, what's, the, what's the thing? Yeah, no, you just show us the website of your company and we go to the little manage, company management page and your picture has to be there. So are we going to talk about favorites? Yeah. I, I have one I could talk about. Fire away. So w- one there- thing that happened early on in the development of Stack Overflow was we realized that we can use Stack Overflow to build Stack Overflow. In other words, 
I run into these really annoying, weird little problems that are pretty obscure. I mean, I can do Google searches and stuff, but they're fairly obscure. Um, but I can just post it on Stack Overflow and actually get a really good answer. And one thing we found was that you know we test on the main browsers, and by the main browsers, I mean IE7, Safari slash Chrome. Those are pretty much the same thing, mm-hmm. same engine. And then Firefox three. We only do the oh, and also Opera. We do Opera nine point five. What about my own for. favorite browser? We just do latest versions of modern browsers. That's all we support. Uh, and to some extent, IE6 in the sense that we don't want to be utterly broken on IE6 because there's a lot of corporations and stuff that are still, for some reason, not upgraded to IE7. Um, but I ran into this weird little bug, and I had seen this before and I didn't understand it. But then finally people opened user voice tickets on it, and I felt, okay, i got to follow up on this. It was You would have a block of code that was in HTML tags pre and code. Mm-hmm. And all other browsers, you could copy-paste this code all day long, no problems. And you just, you know, highlight it like I'm doing now, copy-paste, fine. But for some reason, IE7 would freak out. It would just copy and paste, like, one giant line, like, with no line breaks. Oh, because you have carriage returns instead of carriage return line feed? Is that what it is? Well, it, it, it... it turned out to be more subtle than I thought. So I posted it on Stack Overflow. And then I actually had to post an update to the question because I figured out some more about it. It had to do with we're using Google's Prettify.js uh, to yeah. do syntax yeah. highlighting. Mm-hmm. That modifies the page at runtime through JavaScript. Oh, so it's, really? So it's a JavaScript oh, okay. modif- modification. It's client-side syntax coloring. That's right. It's client-side syntax coloring. And the great thing was there were several answers that came through. And... It evolved over a period of time, and finally Andrew Johnson gave me basically a line-by-line fix for Prettify um, that will actually do it. I mean, it, it turns out IE7 is really sensitive to the, the actual characters you're using, like BR versus carriage return line feed and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we have to do like a special IE7 fix in the Prettify.js Google code to make this work. But it was awesome because it illustrated a few things. One, me going back and figuring more about the problem and like updating the original question. And also the people who were responding actually changing their approach over time. What's the, where's um, the question? What's it called? Um, it's uh, 136443. Can I just like search for a question number? Yeah. Well, you could do, why doesn't IE7 copy? Yeah, pre-code less. Oh, cool. No yeah. bug in IE6. Pretty.js has a work of fine. Hey, did you ever fix, fix that thing in Pretty.js with the comments in, in VB and VB.net and with the possible I believe comments? We, we actually I, I pulled down a new version of the Prettify code at some point. And that fixed month. it. I think it did because I noticed people were posting code blocks in VB and they didn't look completely broken. Here, I can try it right now. I just have to type um, sub hello. Well, you could just go to the VB6 tag probably. That would be faster. Hello there. What am I doing wrong? I got to make this a code. That's working. Oh, I can't tell. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I don't know if I've seen comments though. Was it specific to comments? I can, the preview, you know, the preview doesn't do the coloring, so I can't. It just does type if, if you. It's oh, a timer. Uh, yeah, no, it's not fixed. Sorry, it, it, because what happens is that you put a single ap- apostrophe, and then Google decides it's going to be a string. And you oh, never terminate the line. It doesn't. It doesn't think that the string ends at the end of the line. Yeah, that's unfortunate because the rest of the code looks fine. I'm looking at some VB6 tag questions here, and the code looks good, but there's no comments. I mean, yeah, if you put in a comment, that just breaks kind of the rest of the thing becomes inside the string. No, and that's actually like I know that Prettify is, is supposed to be language independent, but it's extremely rare to have a string that wraps to the next line in most languages. Well, I can. Over time, they might fix that. I think the only thing working against that is going to be the relative unpopularity of VB in the big scheme of things now. So yeah. it might not be a high priority. 
It seems like a like an impossibility to make a single code prettifier that works with any language that doesn't at least attempt to, you know, sniff out an opinion as to what the language is. You know, maybe right. Yeah, prettify is now. pretty pretty magical. We've talked about that before, but you're right; it still definitely has that bug. So anyway, that was my question, and I've done a few like that where I use it to build Stack Overflow, and cool. it's worked really well. I actually, I've already incorporated, I asked, a, one, of, one of the questions that I asked uh, a while ago was how to do smart quotes or curly quotes in, um, with the um, HTML editing component of Internet Explorer, which I use in this crappy version of CityDesk I use to produce my own website. It's like my own private build that has all kinds of crappy crap clomped onto it, and the main stuff that I don't use doesn't even work anymore, and, but it does actually produce my website somehow, kind of, mm-hmm. and uh, so I asked how to get smart quotes to work, and um, got an answer. It was a pretty good answer, and, but I've even actually gone back and edited that answer uh, you know, to sort of improve it as I use the code and, and fix bugs in it. Um, right, so that was a VB6 question. Yeah, I'm embarrassed. I don't. I don't know if it's got the VBC. It's really more about the HTML editing, uh, the HTML editing control, which people use. Oh, um, I see. All over the place. Anybody that wants a rich text editor that produces HTML uh, on Windows will use that. Um. All right. Uh, here's my question. Mine is uh, deal breakers for new programming jobs. I'll just pick that one because it's got the most votes. It's question number two four two nine nine six. And the question is, what can come up in an interview that should set off alarm bells for a coder? Um, like, like, I guess, if you go to an interview for a job and you hear something like, what, what, what are those smells that you need to worry about that would make you not want to work there? Well, we kind of covered this on a previous podcast. I mean, one is, like, if they don't give you some kind of test that is actually meaningful, like sit down with an actual compiler and, well, we, you know, we your IDE know. and produce some kind yeah. of solution, just to make sure that you actually do know how to use the tools. Mm-hmm. We all know that the, uh, the, in, the Google answer for this is, or if you search Google for this, you probably get uh, Joel's. The, 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 the Joel test was the sort Joel of designed test. to do that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this, that's what... Uh, but everybody knows the Joel test. Let's come up with something interesting. Okay, the receptionist uh, is a vampire. <laughs> well, you could look at the top-rated answers. I, one that's interesting you don't cover at all is the requirement to be on call. That's true, Which, and that may be a personal preference thing. Uh, well, that's Never on call is pretty call. crappy. I don't know yeah. how you get yeah. around that. I mean, I guess if they paid you like twice as much or something like that, but the yeah, the that's idea true. that you we, yeah. at any given time there could be a call where you'd have to go rush around and fix code—that's kind of traumatic. And that's something that uh, you know some some companies just make a like a religion of being on call. Like I think we have a programmer who used to work at Amazon, and I think he says that the the carrying the dreaded pager. Um, was something like it was more than just the fact that there were people that needed to keep Amazon.com up and running because if it went down for even a second, they would lose a million dollars, and that was, you know, their entire profit for six years or something that they would lose if they, the site bleeped for a minute. So, but it was more than just that there had to be people that would keep it running. So much as that because it was so important to keep the whole site running, they felt that everybody had to be on call at all times. Kind yeah. of. We had uh, when I worked at Nortel. Um, people could, if you know, volunteer to be on call, and actually, people did. I did for a while. Uh, this is uh, the summer that when I was getting married, and we needed to save a lot of money for all this stuff that, you know, to pay for weddings and things. Um, and they would pay you. Basically, we were getting paid 24 hours a day. This is in Canada, where they have nice laws that protect uh, employees and make sure you're, you're getting paid appropriately. So, if you were, if I got a call, 
So first of all, if I was on, if I was carrying the pager, I got paid half time. If I got a call and if it was outside of my working hours, I would get paid time and a half. And if the call came in on a Sunday, it was double time. Wow. Um, but I mean, it was still it's, it's still very painful. You know, I, I remember getting calls. I got this one call, um, and this uh, customer was using uh, our one of our products, and they were in a in a glue factory. This is the company. It was a glue factory, and they were they got on the phone with me. At this point, they'd uh, they'd gone through so many 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 levels of support, and uh, the manager here on the the customer says uh, to me, she says, do you know what we do? Do you know what we make, son? He's like, um, no, I'm sorry, I don't. She's like, he's like, uh, we make glue. <laughs> and I have one of your, they actually had one of our support people there. It wasn't actually, they weren't an employee of Nortel, but they were um, a distributor that would sell our stuff. And he threatened to glue the person up against the wall <laughs> <laughs> if we couldn't figure out the problem um, for, their, for this call center software that they had. Um, so, we, yeah, we promised to fix it. Wait, wait. Why would a glue company have call centers? Uh, yeah, I think they. I think that's maybe one of their products. I'm trying to remember. I mean, I can say the name of the company, but that'd probably be inappropriate. Yeah. you guys could figure no, out. That's fine. Jeff, stories. this is in. You have to understand. This is in Canada. This is in Canada. Oh, that's you know, this, true. This customer. No, this customer <laughs> was in, 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 in the states. They were in America, but I was getting the call, and it was like something like uh, a Saturday night at like 1 a.m. or something, and we had to get this uh, their phones basically back up and running. Um, Somehow, I mean, even though we have we have Copilot and we have fog bugs on demand, both are need to run twenty four hours a day. Yeah, but we don't really like keep a programmer on call, right? So what do you do? Yeah. I mean, well, remember that. I mean, uh, there are system nine. administrators who watch things. Well, but yeah. you had that five nines post, I remember. But was that did that that happened off hours, didn't it? Uh, the five nine. What you had some problem with uh, Ethernet connectivity where it was. Selecting wrong and bringing things down. Oh yeah, that did. I mean, those those things do happen off hours, and it's just, the system mints are on call yeah. essentially. No, th- no, that is true. We have we, know, we have a lot of, of monitors. Yeah, there are two of them. I mean, there had been one for a while, um, and it is the case. Sometimes, sometimes I get uh, calls because I, I mean I'm heavily involved with the Fogos on Demand product, um, and uh, so uh, it, but it's very rare. I, I mean, I'm trying to think of in the in the year and half year and a bit that we've had on demand. Um, I think I've gotten maybe one or two calls from uh, Michael Gorsuch saying, hey, dude, can you help me out with this? It's, I'm, I'm stuck. Um, but they're monitoring follows all the time, uh, and uh, you know, their pagers go off, or their phones, rather, and then they wake up and fix things. And we just don't even notice. So I'm looking at some of the other answers here to uh, things to worry about. Uh, a, a real popular one is like unpopular old programming languages. Like, you know, you'll be able to work in insert fun language here really soon. But just for a couple of weeks, you'll have to maintain our mumps. Co- what is mumps? COBOL VB4 application. <laughs> what is Oh, mumps, yeah. I don't even know what that is. What is that? It's very obscure. There's like, it reminds you of RBG2. <laughs> That was like one of those languages, like pre-COBOL. It was like sort of like an assembler. Anyway, uh, inflexible working hours. That's kind of a good one because a company that thinks that nine to five is a good idea, or that you have to be um, you have to be at work for the you know the open of the trading day on, on on Wall Street, even though you're just a programmer and you're working on some maintenance thing, is uh, often a sign of a company that does things like you know a little bit irrationally. Like they don't actually necessarily think through everything. Right. Uh, oh, this is a good one. The interviewer does not seem happy with his job. That's kind of a good sign. 
<laughs> I didn't go. Well, but that that implies that you're good at reading people, which I I don't think that I'm. You know, you great. don't have to be. You know, I did. I went to to interview at Oracle when I was in college, and the interviewer, who for whatever reason I had the most respect for, was like, "Oh yeah, you don't want to work for here. You should apply at Borland." <laughs> it's like he started listing all these other companies. He's like, "Yeah, I just started working here, but God, it really sucks. You you know, sometimes they just tell you, tell you." <laughs> <laughs> or they're leaving, you know, and they just have no good excuse wow. for that. Like, they're doing an interview, but this is their last week, and they're like, well, it's really my last week here, so I guess I'm not a good person to tell you about uh, whether you should, you should be working here. You know what's awesome, though? I'm noticing this one long response. It's the third one down with 57 votes from NXC. Yeah. I was noticing he's actually gone in and edited this nine times. He's actually added more information. He's improved it. He's... I'm just impressed that he's gone over time, I guess, because this it's is a like high-rated a, response. You know, this is sort of your, your philosophy of uh, the uh, Stack Overflow is almost like a blogging tool for people that don't have blogs or people that just, like, they have one topic they really want to get out there. They want to put a lot of work into it, but it's just a topic. You know, it's not like they want to have their journal of seven years of development work online. Right. Well, he did a great job. I mean, it's a yeah. great response. It's it's formatted well. It reads well. And, I mean, he's obviously been maintaining it over Yeah, and it's organized. Yeah. 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 So I mean, that's I'm a, that's that impressive. Up. I really, that's great. I'm just happy to see that working the way it was designed to work. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, he'll get more votes as he edits it. Well, I didn't actually read what he said because it's a little bit uh, long. But <laughs> I guess I would. Well, yeah. I for for the purpose of the podcast, a little long. But I read some of the other, some of, yeah. It it does look very good. All right. Yeah. Bobak, you got a question for us? Uh, yeah, I do. The question is, what real life bad habits has programming giving given you? It's a uh, one six four four three two. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed this uh, this question. I actually like reading the answers because uh, uh, you know I read every little one of them, and well, didn't read all of them. There's more than ten pages worth. But uh, as I read them, uh, I, you know, some of them were funny, and some of them were were just serious. But I felt like I related to all of them. Um, I don't know if a non-programmer would find any of this interesting, um, but uh, I. You know, I mean, I've, I've had this conversation with people at lunch here at Fog Creek, and you know, the things that we do that annoy our our spouses, our friends, our families, our kids, um, and uh, I'm sure. I mean, I have a few, and I'm sure they're they're in here. Um, I find that one of the one of the bad habits uh, that I have, and I'm sure you, you know, Joel, Jeff, you can jump in with your habits too. But uh, um, I I try to. Um, Minimize or maximize things, or I try to parallelize in life. You know, I'm, I'm going around and I'm like, okay, yeah. I've got to make some coffee, and I also have to take a shower. It's going to take eight minutes to boil the water, so it's going to start the boiling the water now. Jump in the shower. So you're doing that, that algorithm of the hard drive, right? Where it's like, oh wait, I got to pick up something on the way. Wait, on the way to, while the hard drive spins this, around. Write, it's write that, and yeah. like you're just doing stuff that you think, you know. And uh, actually, all good programmers know that you should. Prove the you know write the code, prove the design first before you optimize. But that doesn't you don't get a second chance sometimes in life. So you're just you're trying to do it all the time. <laughs> um, and that's not well, you know. So that's not so bad. Uh, the other thing, uh, uh, I mean, or sometimes when, if if I get if I buy something, I read the manual. I feel like I got to. I want to know everything Gotta about make it sure. because if something if I'm going to do something that's hard to undo, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, I, got, I noticed that the top answer here uh, with 268 points is I now consider 256 to be a nice round number. And it sort of bugs me that it has 268 points. I think I'm yeah. going to vote it down it's just, it's to try to get it closer to 256. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I think everybody who's listening should go and check that answer about 256. And if it's, if it's been voted above 256, vote it down. If it's been voted below, please. There, there's vote some it really up. good, good ones uh, like, like this. 
Do you want tea or coffee? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Wait, I have to highlight, because we, we actually mentioned this one last time, and, and I talked about 32 being a nice round number because of the number of the podcast. Right, I was yes. referring to this question, uh-huh. and then Kip oh. in the comments complained that I didn't give him proper credit for this answer. So Now we can. Kip, this is your credit for this answer. 268 votes, 33 comments. 267 votes, and, and, uh, and hopefully by the time this podcast gets out there, it'll be, it'll be rounded to 256 exactly. Um, and yeah. Another thing that I don't know if you guys do this, but I feel like as a programmer, um, and, and whenever I'm involved with something or, you know, uh, that's, uh, that's not a trivial process, I, I feel like there's going to be bugs in it. Like, I can't trust anything. Like, if I, if, I, if I have to call, I don't know, the booking agent or if I have to t- call my bank or whatever for anything, I feel like, you know what, they're going to do something wrong. Or mm-hmm. I, can't even, I, can't under, I can't believe that the, the USPS just works. I'm like, there's so many places where this could fail, and huh? so many places that right, right. Like, human it's like you, it's like you go into a deli software. How could it all? How could it work? It's, it's like you go into a deli and they say, ask you the sandwich you want and give them the exact description, and you just know that they they don't have enough short-term memory to remember yeah. what you asked for. Yeah. And you're like, okay, this is not going to have mustard, is it? <laughs> you just but, know that you're like, does that have mustard? But they, but it does. Yeah, or yeah, you're you just to, trying to debug all these processes exactly, everywhere you go. All in real the time, life. everywhere. I'm like, if I if I make a call, what's like the most efficient way to do something, or what's what's the way that's going to cause least bugs like if i should i call should i do it online should i uh you know do something else and sort of i feel like i've lost trust in a lot of things especially in software i don't believe that any software ever really works yeah Uh, Oh, wait. That's that's a great topic in and of itself. The more you work with software, the less you actually trust software. (laughs) I have a hard time explaining this to people. It's like, wait, that's what you do, and you don't like it? I'm like, no, no, I like it. You understand? It's like... I just know everything's it's not broken work. all the time. I mean, I wonder what medical doctors think of of, of medicine and, and uh, yeah. of procedures and of like you know they, you know we just go in there and we're like, well, the doctor said do this, I do this, it should be the right thing, right? But they know about all the nuances and you know the variance in, in how like certain treatments work, you know, between people and whatever, and there it's just this great big experiment to them, um, and uh, and you know they they have this perspective that we don't. Well, I'm glad we got to highlight that question because we had kind of indirectly referenced that one last week, and it is a great one. So I'm M- glad mine is something that. I noticed when I, when I moved to New York. Uh, this is my big one, and I don't see it in the top here, but I'm sure it's in there somewhere. It's like an attempt to debug everything about the real world. So like I got to New York, and I noticed that taxi drivers are very aggressive and often try to bump into you. And, and so, uh, you know, like they're going around the corner, and that's just more important to them than yielding to the pedestrians already in the crosswalk who have the right of way. And And... Something about the, the, the process of being a software developer is like constantly looking at software, looking for bugs, and trying to fix them, and trying to figure out how you're going to fix them. And so there I am just walking down the street in New York, and I'm like, these friggin' taxi drivers need to be taught not to barrel around the corner at full speed when they're a pedestrian that's in the crosswalk. And so the train of thought is, I'm going to chase down that friggin' taxi and bang on the taxi and yell at him, and that next time he won't do that. And of course, it's not going to work, because this 80,000 taxis, and the average taxi driver only lasts in their career in New York about four and a half days before they're either sent back to wherever they came from or they just give up because it's too hard and too stressful. And so you can't really debug the fact that taxi drivers are bad in New York. But there's something I suddenly realized this is a problem with my mentality that I somehow think that it's my responsibility to find things that are broken in my environment or find bugs basically around me and figure out how I'm going to fix them somehow. Actually, I've had that experience. Something in the world happens, and, and you do stuff that doesn't really solve the problem, but just gives you more information about the problem. Right, right. I've noticed my wife be like, "Why are you doing this?" I'm like, yeah. "You understand? If I do this, we'll know more about the problem. It doesn't really solve out. it." But I wonder what <laughs> we'll happens if you press zero out. four times when you call this. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and she's like, why even bother figuring it out? Let's just move on. Let's just get out of here. <laughs> I did. Uh, sometimes it works. Like today at lunch, they, they for the second time they brought us these veggie burgers. They brought regular burgers, which were delicious, but the veggie burgers for the second time were actually like 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 literally dry mortar, like the mortar that you put between bricks <laughs> oh. that had dried. Yeah, and delicious. they were just like uneatable, and I had to throw it out. And I just and I suddenly said, wait, this is the second time they did this, and it's not that hard to make good veggie burgers. They must not know that something about the way they prepare and deliver these veggie burgers is making them awful. So um, so I had our office manager call up the caterers and complain about the veggie burgers. And um, but it's just like that. Like everything you see around you is like, do I? Is it my responsibility somehow to debug this? And I sure right. wish I could get over that because that just makes makes you less happy with the world. I think. Well, sometimes it's just not worth debugging. No, it never yeah. is. It's not your problem. Yeah, you should just really right. move on. Is like is is what my wife tells me. Some she she just she has this look that she gives me sometimes when I've gotten too deep into something and it's really just a waste of time. And uh, and kind of sometimes I, I pretend like I didn't notice the look and I keep going, but. But really, it is, it is like this effort that it takes to, to like let go of it and be like, you know what, I'm not going to go and Google this for the next 45 minutes just because you know my daughter came home and said something or whatever, and I want to learn how to teach her a concept or, or whatever it is that sort of makes me want to dive too deep into something just to figure out every little aspect of it before I start off just so I can... Um, yeah. Right. Should we take Great. some listener questions? Yes, please. All right. Uh, we got a whole bunch. What, uh, let's see. Pick a number between one and eight. Three. Three. Pick another number. <laughs> Wait, is this how you do it every see? week? Is Why this... don't you just pick the one that you want to play? Is this how you do it every week, do and do you edit this part out? I'm like, no, no, this all stays in. <laughs> this all stays in. So, so can, I, can I, as a listener of the podcast, yeah. can we, before we do it, can we listen to the question and, and answer it, or does that just make for a bad podcast? That's what we do. We listen to the question, then we answer it. Oh, really? What? Joel just Have you never been on a podcast? Pick I've one, listened Joel. to it. Haven't we usually answered questions? Oh, I see what you're saying. We play a question, and then we talk about whatever we bloody well please. Yeah. All I just right. Know well, you can try to, to keep us on track. You may have an answer for this guy. Peter, Hi, Peter Bailey. This is Peter Bailey in Dallas, Texas. In Texas. Uh, my question today revolves around the whole imperative versus declarative um, kind of debate. And really, when you're designing a new application, web or otherwise, how much logic do you try to put into the database to design in terms of triggers, stored procedures, all those types of mechanisms, or do you just try to stick with data in the database? Thanks. Mm. Yeah, there's yeah, a I think lot to say here. <laughs> <laughs> so taxis in New York City. <laughs> I don't think there's a really clear-cut answer to this. I think it's just it depends, which people don't want to hear. Are you guys as scared as I am about triggers? I don't like triggers. I think triggers should well, never be used. I, okay. So there's the, <laughs> there's the MySQL view of the world, which MySQL doesn't really have any of that part stuff for the most part. So Good most people that. use it as like a dumb repository of data. Mm-hmm. And I've got to tell you, that's... That is keeping it simple, really. And the best right, advantage when, is you can always switch to a different database because you don't have any, you know, the you most non-portable things are the stored procedures and all that syntax and the... Triggers and yeah, all that absolutely. stuff, default values. And I don't know, I just think the simpler you can keep the database as a, as a rule, I think the happier you'll be as a developer. And I think it's really easy to develop like a, a, a reasonable data layer that sort of isolates you from whatever you want to be isolated from. Mm-hmm. It's just not that hard to do. I think a lot of people get very dogmatic about, oh, you have to do it in prox. The database has to be the place at which you build this API. And I always view that as like super inflexible. That's like right. using the hardware as the API. It's like, it no, could, no, no, put it in the software. 
it can be anywhere. It can be in the proxy if you want it to be. And sometimes that's convenient because, you know, maybe there's, you know, you, there are times when it's convenient to have in the proxy just because you want to minimize the amount of transmission from SQL Server. Like instead of downloading 100,000 rows and then adding them up in your code. Right. But that's an optimization. See, this is my yeah. whole thing with proxies. Like it's assembly language. So, okay, do it where it makes sense, but not just as a blanket, oh, we got to do it because it's the right design. Yeah. And how do you, like, I think it's all performance driven. How do you organize? I mean, do, do, you, do you put your procs in, uh, in source control? Like, I like everything to be there so I can check it out, you know, look at old revisions and stuff like that. And, and I guess you have to be pretty diligent to, like, to get us to have your proc. I mean, it's actually sitting there and living and running on your web server. Do you then export it in, as a text file somewhere and put it in your structural repository? Well, we use, uh, we use a tool from Microsoft. We use the, the Team Suite edition of Visual Studio, which includes the database tool, okay. uh, database edition. And that lets you uh, essentially po- you point it at a database, and it will reverse engineer everything out of the database into a set of files, oh, okay. like literally everything. And all these so like details introspects the database, looks at everything, the schema, all the pro- everything. props, functions, permissions, whatever. You name it, oh, permissions, it does users. it. users. Mm. So yep. does it also does it also know how to integrate with source control and give you diffs and yes. all that stuff? Okay. Well, once once there are files in the file system, the well, source right, you've always been it. able to just like right click on a database and say script this entire database, haven't Oof. you? In SQL Enterprise Manager, I guess uh, yeah, you get a yeah. script generated from the whole thing. Yeah, I suppose. I think it's like one giant script, though, isn't it? It's like a different it's like, workflow, though, right? I mean, yeah. as a, when you're yeah, changing code, part of right? you, you've got out. your ID or your text editor or VI or whatever. You, know, you, you make a change, you compile it, or you put it where you want to put it, and you run it. Whereas this, um, you know, when you're modifying, like the default way to modify a Sprock is to go into Enterprise Manager, right-click, and say Modify. And you know it's just right on your of, live it's server. Doing a, yeah, it's doing, a, <laughs> <laughs> it's doing a bunch of SQL queries in the background, and you can always get those and put them. You, know, you just have to be diligent. And it, maybe this team... Team Foundations, or what is it? TFS? Uh, team Suite Edition team of Suite edition. Visual Studio. It's, it's really a client-side tool. It doesn't okay. have any server parts, other than the fact that it eventually goes into source control. We use Subversion, so we're not even using you know, Team System source control. It still works so, the way so, it's supposed to. So the caller asked about the declarative versus imperative, and what were the other parts of the question? Yeah, just where the things live, I guess. Well, first of all, I, I don't. Let me let me say I don't know if I already said this or if I'm repeating myself because I have extreme amnesia these days. Um, uh, triggers always bother me because it's code that runs when you don't think you're causing code to run, or like you, you don't really know. Like it, it creates a detachment. Like like somebody, it's it's almost like a calling a function when you don't realize that you're calling a function. Like you just think you're inserting something into the database and you're like, how could that possibly have happened? I inserted something in the database and then other thing got deleted and you don't understand why. And you have no way of finding out. I mean, you can obviously, but it's just, it's just, to me, it's like mysterious. Like if if, if that other thing is going to happen, I want you writing code so that when you insert, you need to call that delete function that deletes the other thing. So you're always like, in my mind, a trigger is just kind of a way to maybe patch up for some bad existing code architecture and you just there's no other way to do it. Um, but, but to could, design some triggers, I don't know. the same thing happen if we were using a, an API? Or, uh, when, when you have an API, I mean, you call an API and then it does something. Right. Whereas with a trigger, you're just doing something that you think is innocuous, like an insert, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's magically doing something else on the back end. Quote, unquote, magically. That's true. Which may I mean, surprise you, you. You may just be calling a SQL statement that you just put together right. and it does something. To me, it always bothers me when I'm looking at code and the lines of code that I see in the debugger is I step through it and I say F10, F10, F10 and I step over these lines of code mm-hmm. and I see one and I say, okay, that's going to insert a row. Yeah. I don't even, and, and to me, it's always just sort of a, 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 a hidden problem that you're going to have in the future. 
if that if a trigger is then executing and doing something behind the scenes you don't even see in your debugger when you're stepping through and you're like, I'm, I single stepped through the whole thing. I have no idea why this table disappeared. And so that's one of the things that always bugs me about triggers. But the, and the thing that bugs me about stored procedures, although I use them more and more now, is that, uh, is that they're not nearly as portable as just plain old data schema. So if you ever want, especially if you're working on an application like Fogbox, you're going to distribute to a lot of people, you really want a certain amount of database independence so that you can relatively quickly port to a new database architecture in case you, know, you want to be able to run on MySQL or Oracle or Postgres or something like that. So stored procedures are the least portable thing, and I don't like them. On the other hand, it is very valuable to isolate your business logic, whatever that means. You know, basically keep knowledge of there's, – there's a certain amount of knowledge that you don't want to be right in the UI code about how things work. Like when you add a customer, you need to create a mailbox for them. So that particular thing should be as low as possible in some create customer code that is maybe lives a little bit close to the database and the stack and just not like right in the UI for creating a customer. Uh, and so with Fogbugs, we always do that with those C classes, right? Do we still That's have right. those entity classes? Yeah, we definitely have them. And uh, we just basically keep all SQL in a set of files that all start with the letter C. And um, so we've kind of isolated all the logic into those. Well, and I'm not sure this question, the pieces are together. Like the database question is seems to me to be different than declarative versus imperative, which is like code versus markup styles, mm -hmm. you know? I don't. I'm not sure. I understand how those are related, so I'm going to essentially ignore that part of the question. Yeah, as we always. <laughs> but do. when it comes to databases, I want to be very clear: <laughs> your database should always be under version control. To, to Bob's point, yeah. Yeah. Always, always, yeah. always. Yes. This is like bedrock. You have to do this. Yeah. Whatever you decide to do, we do whatever makes sense to you guys. But yeah, keep it all under source control, please. Absolutely, that's like a, one of the key parts of Fogbugs. <laughs> Fogbugs is because we have this whole C schema architecture. Yeah. Like yeah. we have this whole gigantic class that has a list of all the tables and all the all the columns, right. and it can you can point it in any database and it can upgrade it to the latest version. It can turn it into a Fogbugs database basically by adding tables and columns. Cool. Um, let's take another question here. Uh, oh wait, this is there's a couple of sort of Stack Overflow related ones. Pick uh, whatever you. Which one, Bob? I pick a number from one to seven. Uh, four. You liking that one? I know the answer. Not that number. Not, not four. Not <laughs> four. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Hi, know. Jeff and Joe. I'm Vincent Tan from Singapore. My I question bet. is, nice what are your top three costs in running a software business? And what do you do to reduce them? Thanks. Okay, so that's easy because I happened to be looking at this the other day. Do I still have that PowerPoint slide? Number one cost when running a software business is? People. This should be easy. It's people, of course. Bank salaries. Uh, number two for us is the office space. Um, uh, although it's it's still even a number two is a very distant second. I mean, it's still on the order of in a normal company, it should be like five six percent of your revenues um, toward, towards office space, and that's about what we've historically averaged. It's a little bit high now because we just moved into a big space, and we haven't filled it up yet. Um, so number one, people. Number two, office space, and number three, uh, lunch, insurance. Oh, you know, the number three is sort of outside services. It's all these people you have to pay, like accountants and lawyers, to uh, to do things, and that's almost like people, except that they're just sort of not your employees. Graphic designers. Well, the funny thing is, okay, so Stack Overflow is like the world's tiniest company, and it still yeah. breaks down basically the same way. <laughs> that's right. I yeah. mean, people, because I I do actually try to pay Jeff and Jared when I can, what I can, once in a while, and and <laughs> to be clear, we're starting in licorice. starting in January. 
we're going to be very serious about this because Stack Overflow will be supporting Jared full time. So we're going to start to get much more serious about revenue. We're going to try not to be jerks about it, obviously, but we're trying to you know feed Jared and make sure yeah. he has a real job. Um, but yeah, the number one is still people. Even now, in, in our <laughs> primordial state, yeah. we're not really paying people what we should be. It's still number one with the bullet is is paying people. Could we have could we have a little picture on the homepage of Jared, sort of looking gaunt and unhappy, <laughs> and it says if you be you know, <laughs> put I some money have, in this tip jar or we yes. won't feed this boy <laughs> yes. no that that is kind of coming I'm going to explain the I think that's going to be like a January 1st New Year's resolution kind of thing is to get much more serious about that and I'm going to have a blog post about wow, it wow you're going to yeah. uh, New Year's resolution that, that might that'll make him feel really really secure <laughs> <laughs> that is my New Year's resolution to start paying you um the and trouble, then wait, wait, yeah. we think number two would be server hosting for us. Uh, yeah. Although that's only because we have like virtually no other expenses. I think if we had other you're expenses, working, it would break down and so forth. Similarly to what you're describing, where if we paid, you know, accountants and people like that, that probably would cost more than the servers for sure. Um, you sh- you, you will have to pay an accountant at some point, but not until the first oh, year yeah. anniversary when you do taxes. I sort of I, I want to call out another part of the caller's question, which is how do you reduce these costs? Um, I, if 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 that's what you're focused on, then you're probably making a mistake. A software company is not in business to be the low cost provider of anything. Uh, really, I mean, you you should obviously try to. I guess we could probably come up with lots of tips of how to bootstrap and how to save money here and there. And since the biggest one is people, obviously the most important thing is to find people who are willing to you know work for equity, you know, work for a stake in the project. Rather wait, than wait, wait. No, I think there's money. even a better answer to this, and I think you've kind of covered it many times. Is You want to hire the best possible people for the money because you really oh, yeah. want those first-tier A-team people. I mean, if you're going to pay yeah. you know, a you lot of money, that's a salary. Yeah. yeah, if right, you're I paying mean, a guy you're, that's 10 times better than exactly, a lot of other people, 10, then it's, factor, it's totally right? – it's a steal. You're yeah. getting a great deal. And you're only paying maybe 1.2 times the market salary. You as bad. Right. This is what it's all about, and you've talked about that so many times. Somebody, and I was be- that, where did I see that? There was a lot of discussion. Why, 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 why do the 10-time people not get 10 times the salary? You have to start your own company. That's the short answer. I guess. It really is. Or, or at least be you know, in, the, in the key, you know, the, first, the first tier yep. founders of a company. Start or be like in yeah. the main core group, like the first three people, basically, three to four. Even four is a little sketchy, in my opinion, but... Yeah, and, and and that implies a much bigger life risk. I mean, it's just hard. To, it's easy for, you know, this is Paul Graham's favorite thing to talk about, and I think he's right fundamentally. But I think what he underestimates is, like, starting a company is a big pain in the butt. I mean, it's just, it's a yeah. lot of work, and it's very stressful, and there's a lot of risk. And it's not always the right choice for everybody. And I think and he some sells it good so at it. much. Some people, yeah, yeah. He sells it so much that he, I think he makes people feel inadequate. If, you, if you're not starting a company, then you suck. <laughs> is a very reasonable reading of a lot right. of things that he's writing, in my opinion. And I think he goes a little too far. I mean, he's fundamentally correct, but I think he just... I, I don't know, I, I don't know if he's fundamentally correct because, I mean, well, you know, there are, there are a lot of benefits to starting a company. On the other hand, just think about all the people you know. You know, a lot of them, if they tried to start a company, just would make massive mistakes that they would never learn from and fail. Because they just, well, it's, they, you know, like it's, a, it's, a, it's about what they know, who they are, what they think, how they, you know, like some people are just not going to have those skills and some people are. Well, I think it's true. It's, it's honorable to be part of a good family yeah. as it is to start your own family. If you can find a really good company, that's really awesome to work for. It's, it's a great experience. Right. I mean, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Especially I mean, the if only you're being sin- treated fairly and you're, you're sharing in the growth of the company and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, that's what it's all about, is is having the best possible experience. And there's a a bunch of different ways to do that. And I think the only sin, and I think Paul does highlight this, is being in a job where you're not truly happy is the only sin in any of this. It's like if you're at a job where you're just fundamentally unhappy with your work, you should – Right, you should be quitting and getting a job where you're enjoying what you're doing. Yeah. Life is just too short to do that. Darn tootin'. So, what was the question yeah. about? Do you remember? <laughs> Three biggest, <laughs> Three biggest reducing costs. costs. Reducing costs. So I guess we should come up with another random co- random way to save money. Oh, um, you know, you don't actually have to buy a Xerox machine. You can just print things out twice. No, I don't know. Very <laughs> <Not> helpful. <laughs> so there's a lot of. Uh, the coupons, you well, can I, cut coupons. You know what? A, a software company is about creating software, right? What you do day to day is you write software. When you're writing software, you're designing. When you're designing, all that work that you're doing, like even if it's just a line of code and you're just designing a line of code, all that work you're doing is just determining what bits are going to be on the final product that you give to your customers. And once you've got those bits, you can make as many copies as you want. So you can reduce costs just by having more customers. Right. Build a more awesome product. Just That's how you make a better product, and you will divide, you divide all those, either whatever those costs were to build that product. The more awesome it is, the more customers you divide it up amongst, and that reduces your cost per unit. The only way, I mean, that's sort of, Bill Gates is kind of famous for this insight. The only way to get rich is, and to reduce your costs is to sell an awesome product that has just incredible value. Like, I mean, what you get when you buy, even I know Vista is expensive, but... Geez, the number of lines of code you're getting for your two hundred, three hundred dollars that you spend on a, on a, what well, I don't know how much Vista costs. The OEM copy is probably fifty, sixty dollars uh, that you spend on like your copy 100. of Vista. It's more like a hundred, but yeah, go ahead. It's it's a hundred as a part of the cost of the PC. Roughly, yeah. So how many lines well, of code? I mean, how much code are you getting for that? Just when you think about the, now you may not be using all of it, but <laughs> you're getting right. You're getting a ridiculous amount of developer years that went into the design of that product that you know, it would never be possible if it wasn't distributed out over millions and billions of customers. And, and you know, if, you have, if you do something that lets you have even 100 customers instead of five customers, that's far more significant than any, you know, what you spend on lunch or food or lighting the office or things that you could right. save money on, like using fluorescent lights instead of incandescent. I don't know. And also, if you have a mediocre product, you have to push harder to sell it. You have to have salespeople. You have to have, you know That's what I mean? Like, point. the better you can yeah. make your product, the, the less work it is really to sell it. Because you'll get word of mouth. You'll get friend of a friend. You'll get, I mean, that's another way to reduce costs, I think. I mean, if you don't have to have salespeople out there actively hawking your product 24-7 for it to move, then that reduces your costs. I think, yeah, that's true. We have, I mean, we have, we finally added sales here. And the truth is, it's taken them a while to took them a while to come to speed, but also it, it's not entirely 100% clear to us that they are really making sales that we wouldn't have gotten anyway. There's mm-hmm. something about software, whereas if, it's, if it is, I know that it's, uh, it, it's politically incorrect to say this because, well, um, you could say, uh, you know, you can't just make a great product and expect people to beat their way to your door. Uh, you are going to need to do some kind of marketing. You are going to need to make people aware that your product exists or there's no possibility to deliver buy it. On the other hand, that's not what salespeople do. They're, they don't make people aware. That's what marketers do, but that's not what salespeople do. The salespeople just actually um, like implement the, you know, talking to the customers and persuading them to buy your software. And that's something that having great software just dramatically reduces your, your costs. Totally. In the salespeople. That's the, that's the thing I never understood about Dell. I, you know, I just want to ask Michael Dell that question. It's like, why do you pay me 
to occupy your salespeople's time. <laughs> you know, like if I buy something from your website, it costs me more money. So you, Del, Michael Dell will give me money if I call up one of his guys, waste that guy's time, and then that guy gets a commission. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, I think when it comes to enterprise type things where they're buying lots of stuff, I think having a salesperson probably makes sense. Not for me because I'm – I mean I would buy like one or two things a yeah, year yeah, if yeah. that. Well, the enterprise yeah, is selling, sure. selling to a large corporation. You do need a person that will shepherd yes. through that process or it will just die and the, the purchase won't get, get through. Well, generally their pers- purchasing processes are so crazy that it takes a full-time person to even figure them out anyway. Yeah. That, that's, uh, I think there's a, there's a quote from uh, – what's that about? Crossing the Chasm, I think it's from. Where, where, this idea that it costs 50000 to $75,000 is mm-hmm. the minimum price. That's, that's the minimum amount you're going to spend on your sales force to make that enterprise-type sale. That's, that's just the cost. So you of, just tack that on to the price of the You have to. You have done. to. Yeah. So yeah. You're, you're, you certainly can't have a cheap product. All right. Anything else we want to talk about? We have a few more questions, but we're sort of running out of time. Maybe we'll leave those for next week. Um, yeah, leave those for next week. Any other announcements? No, I think that's it. Bye, Becky. You got to get any, any last words of wisdom you want to leave us with? No, just uh, thank you for having me on today. Sure. It's been a pleasure. Um, yeah, it was fun. Got a couple. I got one small announcement, um, which is uh, pa- uh, Patrick Foley and Bob Walsh uh, have a podcast, which some of our listeners may be interested in um, for startups, especially software startups. Uh, the name of the podcast is Startup Success. It's for small software startups and micro ISVs, and um, you can get that at startuppodcast.wordpress.com. Um, Bob Walsh is the guy who wrote that book about micro ISVs, and Patrick Foley is a kind of micro ISV evangelist working for Microsoft, and he's a great guy to hook you up with cheap Microsoft development tools if you're a uh, micro ISV. So anyway, um, startup success, and uh, they interviewed me last week, so you can hear me talking a little bit about Stack Overflow um, on uh, this week's uh, episode over there at startuppodcast.wordpress.com. If you have any questions um, for the show that you want me and Jeff to uh, answer uh, online, you can either uh, record them as an MP3 uh, or Ogvorbis file on your computer and then email them to podcast at stackoverflow.com or call the podcast hotline using your telephone device at 646-826-3879. And um, uh, we'll play it on a future show. Try to keep it under 90 seconds. And finally, there's a wiki where people, uh, volunteers around the world, transcribe these podcasts for the hearing impaired. And that will be linked to from the show notes, which, as usual, are located at blog.stackoverflow.com. Thanks very much. See you next week. Bye. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.